This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-hosts are Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors, and Lee Chen Ren, the director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not tied to the offer of investment products and is not endorsement or recommendation of any company, security, or investment strategy. The views our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today. First half, we're going to be talking with another professor from the Warren School who's focused on management technology, the M&T program, the head of that program uh, at Warren, about what he's seeing on the economy opening up and some of the trends in the tech space. We're continuing to talk technology with the CEO of a cloud computing company in the second half of the program, along with a, a venture capitalist who looks at that space. Uh, but before that, Professor Siegel, uh, sort of interesting times, all, as always, in the markets. How are you thinking about sort of going into the weekend, uh, sort of latest developments? Yeah, well, you know, it's pretty much the theme that we've been saying for weeks. Um, you know, people are so surprised about this uh, bull market, but if they had been listening to what we were talking about, they shouldn't be surprised. The huge amount of liquidity that was put in by the Fed, unprecedented, was going to find its way into the equity markets, uh, and it did find its way uh, into the equity markets um, and um, will further fuel, I think, uh, rally as as we open up. Now, there's always a few, you know, um, uh, Trump later this afternoon could say something about China. It might just be about the Uyghurs. We don't know, but that's adding a little uncertainty. But the trend is... Is is uh, is certainly very very strong. I, I thought that uh, one um, so important data point, and again, I, I, you know, I, I've not looked in the rear view mirror as I've called this data, but uh, what seemed to shock everyone, but shouldn't have. Uh, personal income expected to be down six percent in the month of April was in fact ahead by ten and a half percent, shocking everyone. The savings rate went to 30%, highest by far in history. Money, uh, uh, Brian Moynihan, uh, CEO of Bank of America, was on CNBC yesterday and said uh, he's never seen such a rise of people. And these are people with less than $5,000 in their checking account, that their average checking account has gone up 20 to 30% over a year ago levels uh, with the stimulus uh, checks. Uh, unemployment insurance, et cetera. So this is all, of course, tremendous fuel to the fire that will spark spending uh, as we get comfortable with with uh, opening up the economy. Now, again, there's always a threat about, and we want to talk to again on, on, on that, uh, developments on the virus front um, in just a moment. But clearly uh, that tremendous saving that's just there the liquidity that is just there is waiting to push into the markets. Um, and um, uh, I think uh, that's the reason for the bull market and why I don't see it uh, uh, ending anytime uh, soon. In terms of that, that, that's a really interesting point on the Moynihan, the 20, 30% level higher checking accounts. You know, I, I was you know watching all the news stories this week and, and you hear some of the, the, the discussion is going from well, we have the $600 extra credit to keep people on the unemployment insurance, but now they're talking about, well, perhaps because so many people are actually making more than then they were employed that they need to actually start incentivizing people to go back to work and sort of talk about the new credit to 
incentivize getting back in the labor force. Are, right. are you hearing about that? And, oh, yeah. And well, I mean, it was well publicized a couple of weeks after the uh, CARES program that uh, virtually half the states were now paying uh, unemployment with the $600 bonus, were paying unemployment insurance above the wages of the people that were unemployed. Um, yeah. And that's not an incentive to come back. And I've actually had personal experience of some shopkeepers said, you know, we tried to hire someone and we couldn't because we couldn't pay the wage that they were getting. Now, of course, one way is to take away, and that's supposed to end at the end of July. Um, and the other, of course, is to provide an incentive for people to hire these people back, which, of course, is just more liquidity uh, being uh, being pushed into the markets. But, uh, you know, all, all this is... Is, uh, is is really, uh, I think, uh, getting manifested. Now, there's some people, I mean, Jim Cramer said, this looks all great now, but what happens when these checks run out and, you know, and the, peop- uh, the, the payment protection program runs out, et cetera, and so on? We're not, you know, there'll be all these unemployed without uh, this. Now, you know, there, but, but, but there's a lot of people already that have their savings ready for that, and uh, that's why they're saving 30% of their uh, that so I think we can go quite a few months longer, and then of course see about what kind of, you know, uh, if we can remain open in uh, uh, September and October, which of course is is one of the big un- uncertainties. Um, but uh, I do, you know, before we get to the guests, just for a moment, I always like to check in on the uh, anything that you're seeing um, of interest on the virus front. I do have one interesting point that. Uh, I have read, but uh, I want your input first. Thank you, Professor, and I hope everybody is safe. Um, And indeed, I think if people listen to our show, we've been, you know, very uh, optimistic, both um, from the market side, and you mentioned the liquidity, and from the virus side, because, you know, I I do believe people... um, I I don't have too much to add. All I want to say is I think people have... um, uh, generally, it is opening up, and uh, you can see that there's not a significant run-up in cases. And the one number which I have been most tracking is the number of people in the hospitals. And when I look at Santa Clara County, I, because I've been tracking it uh, every week, is that you know, beginning of April they have two people, two hundred people hospitalized. End of April, they have 150. And today, as of today, they are 52. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their regular hospitalization capacity is sitting at 50%, uh, both at the you know, acute hospital beds and ICU beds. So both are 50%, uh, you know, uh, capacity, which means, you know, even if you double, they, they still have. And their surge capacity, like the you know, in case there's a you know huge run-up, is really on idle. You know, 100% uh, unused, yeah. unutilized. Uh, both ventilators, you know, only 88, 88% utilized. So I think as long as there's enough hospital um, uh, capacity, which is pretty clear from uh, Pennsylvania, also uh, released hospitalization numbers that there are enough hospital capacity. So I don't really see much risk at all of, you know, re-lockdown, uh, if, if people are worried about those. Right. I, I read a very interesting article by Justin Fox on, on Bloomberg. Um, he said that there's increasing evidence um, that this coronavirus, which is actually like uh, SARS, um, uh, actually, it's a very interesting, There, it, it, it has a low infant, uh, infectivity but there are certain what's called super spreaders for genetic reasons we don't know that seem to be able to spread the disease tremendously. So you get these outbreaks. And we've seen yeah. that in Asia. Um, and it turns out that that actually is a good thing because if we can track those um, and uh, be able to uh, vaccinate when even with limited vaccine or, or isolation, that we could in fact control the disease in 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 the fall. So it's it's, it's kind of a uh, it's it's kind of there. It's 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 not a standard influenza type of infectivity with an R naught, which has been estimated 2.2 to 2.5 for uh, COVID-19. Um, um, it's actually less than one for most people and 10 or 12 or 20 for certain people. 
and those people seem to be spreading it, if we can test enough and get those isolated, we can control this uh, pandemic much easier than it would be had it been a uniform infectivity of 2.5. So, I mean, you can you can check his article. I thought actually it was it was it was um, supported by scientific research in Israel and several others who have actually done tests that actually now uh, talk about. So it's a skewness as well as the infectivity, and the skewness is extremely high with this particular uh, virus, which I thought was a very very uh, interesting uh, insight. Um, yeah. I don't want to take any more uh, time from our. <laughs> One more quick question, Professor, because you, you gave our our, our listeners. Um, an update that you were getting your tests, I presume uh, you, you got your results back? Yes, uh, we got ours in 48 hours. Uh, we had no preconditions, but it was, uh, you know, sponsored by the CDC. It was free. We are free of any infectivity. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we are social distancing, but but not being extreme. We have mixed with our immediate family, but that's that's about it. Well, it'll be interesting to hear as you open up how how you're getting comfortable getting out there. We'll we'll keep updates on that. Thanks again for for joining us for some commentary to start the show here. Thank you very much. See you next we're, week. Let me uh, sort of reintroduce the show. We're talking. Uh, this is behind the market, Sirius XM 132. We're going to be talking with Professor God Allen, who's the professor of operations and information decisions at the Wharton School, sort of director of the Jerome Fisher Management and Technology Program. Uh, professor Allen, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me, Jervin. So, you know, you heard a little bit about the uh, sort of the, the, the opening with Professor Siegel getting back to opening the economy. And, and you're focused a lot on the technology, which has been uh, the technology space and and remote work generally, you know, the sort of gig economy, I know, is one of your specialties. How are you looking at the reopening of uh, the economy here and, and your particular focus of technology, how that's impacting the economy generally? Yeah, so I see multiple things there. On the one side, I think many of the firms that at least the big technology employers, uh, Facebook, Google, Twitter, um, already allow their employees to start relocate and, in fact, to start doing being remote, um, which I think in many ways is going to help in, in opening the economy because you're going to have a much more phased approach. And in many ways, that's kind of like we talk about Israel here. As Sigel mentioned, Israel, Israel is actually talking about shutting down back schools after having an outbreak that just started in the last two days. So I think we, we need to be ready for more and more of these flare-ups. And I think the more gradual the return is going to be, the better it is. Now, I think many of these firms have invested heavily in the last few weeks, moving more and more things to the cloud, moving more and more into a remote productivity software, whether it is, um, I'm not talking about just about Zoom, of course, and Slack, but actually allowing much more things like Notion and, and, and using tools that allow you to retain. And in fact, many firms reported an increase in productivity once employees, employees move to be remote. At, at the same time, I don't think that's a sustainable long-term strategy. I'm happy more to talk about that. But please, I think for the short term, I think firms are restructuring their workplaces, they're restructuring their software around it, they're restructuring to enable people to go back, but in a much more of a modulated way. Um, so it, it will allow us to see how things are, are building up over time. Yeah, how much experience did you have with remote teaching this last semester, and how do you see that impacting your you know, summer program? Uh, I believe you're, you're doing something over the summer, and then you think about the, sort of the courses in the fall. That's a great question. I think um, in, in many ways, I have to, to say about myself, I have had experience before teaching online courses um, in, in different capacities. I, I was myself an entrepreneur in the area of educational technology, so I developed so I had quite a bit of experience with that. And, and even with that, it was actually quite hard. But my view on that, and I, and I hear a lot of criticism, uh, but overall, we know that teaching in a physical classroom uh, for 90 minutes, regardless of what the topic is, is not the optimal way of doing that. We also know that teaching for 90 minutes over Zoom is not the optimal way. Now, all of us were thrown into the midst of that in the middle of, of spring break, but, and even with that, I thought we actually generated, I can tell about my students, my students ultimately, when I look at their exams, they actually did better than usual. 
And I think the reason they did better than usual is that ultimately teaching online allows you to go back and watch the video again and again. It allows you to engage with people in different formats. You can, some people like to be in a Zoom. Some people like to, be, to watch things asynchronously. Some people like to go back and rewatch the lecture. Um, and I think there was definitely much more uh, work for the students because each faculty was trying to teach while also trying to figure out at the same time. But the, I think there is a lot of the criticism we hear on the fact that it's a lower quality teaching. A lot of that is really um, uninformed by, by, by actually any data on how this team did. I, I can give my own single data point. I think when we think about the fall, the fall is going to be interesting because if you ask me, there is zero chance we'll have, or at least very low chance, we'll have fully physical in-person teaching. At the same time, I think there is absolutely zero chance we'll have fully online teaching. The reality is that anything in the middle, as long as you're deliberate in how you do that, can generate better outcomes. And, and, and I think the question is to what extent we'll, we're willing to admit it after saying for many, many years, that in-person, physical classroom is the best configuration. I think as an organization, as a university, we will have to admit and say, you know, we are wrong about that. It was really never the optimal way of doing that. We're not saying that only because of COVID. We're saying that because by now technology matured and actually we have the ability to deliver a hybrid class that actually is better off for everybody. But that's actually exactly everything we preach, which is low-sequence low high-frequency, low-consequential uh, testing. We are going to spread it out throughout the week rather than meeting twice a week only for 90 minutes. I mean, there is a, a way to do that. But I think at this stage, I, I see a vacuum of leadership to come and actually make these statements, and in which case we see many students reacting by taking a semester abroad, taking a semester off, taking a, a gap year, really uninformed, I think, by, by the, the quality of the potential offering. No, that's really interesting to hear that they did better. So that's a really good sign on from your, your particular class. I mean, I, I wonder if, if now people see this new model and how you're successful doing it, you know, how this is going to change education longer. Right? We all question the permanent versus temporary, but, you know, there's that rising education costs, high student debt. Um, you sort of wonder, you know, even for the universities, do they need as many teachers? If you can have the best teachers getting their classes in a, in a broader fashion, uh, do, you have, do you have a sense in the long term? Do you think this is going to force longer term rethinking of how we do a lot of things like this? So, so two things on that. So first of all, I think, uh, I think it will generate or should generate long term thinking. So the question I'm asking my students continuously is of the, everything you've seen, what are the things you want? To stay and all the things you, you want to, dis, to be discontinued, it's clear that, and if you, in fact, if you want to see a good model for that, it's Minerva University. But it's a, it's a Penn alum, Wharton alum, Ben Nelson, that started a university called Minerva that was supposed to be the first online Ivy. And all of their education, all of their teaching is done online, yet the students are co-located. So the students live in the same facility, and it allows them to take him to take them from place to place around the world. The, it, so one thing it generates, it actually generates better education. One thing is that it is not, it's cheap. The reason it's not cheap is that actually to generate good, so I'll give an example, when I teach in a classroom, usually it's only myself. When I teach online, I always have at least one TA with me moderating the chat. I, in fact, while it seems that actually I can teach 80 people, once we go above 60 people, it becomes very, very hard to manage a discussion online and keeping everybody engage. So I would say I don't really see huge benefits yet in terms of cost. I don't see benefits in terms of um, scale. I do see, however, the ability to generate better outcomes. One thing I should say also that if you look at cost of education, very little of that came because of, I mean, people, when, when you look at all the factors and, and which you just said a second ago, which is the fact that cost of education became higher, in fact, it outpaced inflation by a, a, a significant amount, that's not driven so much by educational part of the university. Most of that was driven really by overinvestment in administration, overinvestment in additional facilities, and competing on having nicer and more fancy dorm rooms. Very little of that went into education. The question is, are we ready for a competition that is really only based on education and not based on other elements? 
And I'm not sure we are ready for that. I think, in fact, many universities try to differentiate by offering additional services that are valued by students, whether it is career services, technology services, newer labs, is things that are, are, are nice to have, but maybe if you really want to have just very bone education, that's not what you're going to need to look at. Let me reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Gad Allen, a professor of operations, information decisions at the Wharton School. Uh, Gad, so you, one of your focus points, and you know, I watched one of your YouTube videos on the gig economy uh, and how the, the shutdown is going to impact companies like Uber and Lyft, you know, and sort of this trend towards um, that gig economy. Any what, any comments on the long-term trends to the sort of part-time work and how you see the shutdown and reopening impacting these these types of companies? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and, and let me give you one data point before I talk about Uber and Lyft, which is a Airbnb seems to bounce back faster than hotels and, and other establishments. And, and to me, at least, that's an interesting data point. It's clearly only limited because we are only now starting to get out of the, this lockdown. But my main point about that, that, that is important for me to state about the gig economy is we like to criticize the gig economy for the fact that they don't provide employees benefits and, and health care. And I think there are clearly issues that need to be considered there. But one of the main the reason I'm overall very bullish on the gig economy of all is that it's exactly in times like that. It's a much more nimble economy on both sides of the economy, both on the demand side and the supply side. And what I mean by the supply side, we're talking about, you know, talk about different estimates, and I'm not sure what's the common theme here on, on, on this show, but people talk between 20% to 30% of unemployment. Many of these people, once they're going to run out of their savings and of the a, the, the checks that they got from, from the government, they will have to find a way to supplement their payment. The gig economy is exactly for that type of an engagement. On the demand side, if you ask me now, am I more comfortable getting into a, the metro, the subway in New York, or into a random Uber? I'll, I'll take Uber every day, uh, even though they might claim that they, claim, they clean the, the subway every 48 hours. By, by the time they that, that, that actually seems to be like a fairly risky proposition. So in my opinion, what the gig economy is going to provide, while the initial reaction is, is, is shock, where it clearly I, I, I didn't want to be taken over yesterday, but I wanted, but I would try to see how long it would, usually takes three minutes until I get an Uber. Yesterday was 20 minutes. Um, and so clearly drivers are a much more nah, is, is lagging. But once it's going to pick up, I think it's going to pick up quickly. Now, in the next two years, it's, it's an, and here I go back to your question from the beginning about remote work. When, when we think about autonomy, the first thing we have in mind are Uber, Lyft, Airbnb. But in fact, if you look at many things that, that in the more white-collar type of jobs, you look at Upwork, which is the, about web design, about software development. You look at firms like Catalant that are engaging in a basically short-term consulting gig to replace a, a McKinsey and the like. These are primarily ex-McKinsey, ex-BCG, ex-Bain, ex-MBA students. I see, like, when you talk about the fact, when we talk about the significant unemployment, that's exactly where many of these high-skilled employees are going to go to. And even if you live remotely in Colorado, now you can actually work for three or four firms at the same time, or at least do many of these projects at the same time because you reduce the cost of managing these distribution channels. So overall, if you think about both unemployment and better technology and better channels, I, I'm, I think the economy is going to help us at least sustain ourselves in the next few years. Now, when sort of catching up with you, I, I, you, I learned you sort of also focus on sort of the platform type ecosystems and so some of your research is focused on platforms. Any commentary on just how you see platforms impacting general businesses? And sort of some of these, what we just talked about, the, the Airbnb and Ubers are, are platform type companies. But any other commentaries on where you see platform businesses shaping the future here? So what platforms are doing, and, and we can talk about their different platforms, right? I mean, I think today... It's an interesting day to talk and avoid that topic, but talk about Twitter and Facebook. But platforms are, are really, if you think about like the, the, the sort of like 
the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution was really, to a large extent, and I'll do a little bit of a history class here, it were about massive investment in capacity and then monetizing that capacity. Massive investment in technology and monetizing that. Um, and a lot of that was really building distribution channels. So if you have a distribution, you have the ability to scale. What these platforms did, and, and platforms here I'm talking about, again, going back to the names we mentioned, from Uber to Lyft, but also Facebook in that sense as a platform for reaching customers, as iPhone as a platform to reach when you have an app. All of these uh, really changed the game because they changed it from if you in the past needed capital and employees to start something, now you don't need anything to start a business. You have, if you have content, there are at least 10 distribution channels that allow you to get to every person in the world in every language. If you have a house, you can rent it in different, in different places. If you know how to cook, you can sell. I mean, I think that it reduced significantly the cost of distribution. It reduced significantly the cost of reaching customers. What it did, however, it also reduced the ability to differentiate. And I think that's kind of where the risk is. I think if you see what it means to sell on Amazon, if you look at what it means to publish on Facebook, unless you actually, or, or to post your movie on, 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 yeah, on YouTube, unless you very quickly find a way to reach your customers outside of these platforms, I think you have to be lost within them. All of these platforms have the absolute, they, they have one priority in mind, which is monetizing and scaling, in which case you, you are really just a cog in that. So I, I think when I, when I, with people that have brands, I mean, it's very appealing to try to run your brand initially from a Amazon. You, you have a huge reach, but very quickly, that's going to be something that a, will not allow you to differentiate, will not allow you to grow, which one is to try to balance. So on the one side, really providing the ability to, we, we've never had in, in, in the history such an easy way to launch all the way to monetize our businesses if you're a small business owner. At the same time, actually to be able to compete and grow and excel, that's actually become, became harder and harder in the last few years, I would say. I mean, it's, it's interesting, as you, as you point out, like the, uh, some of these media platforms are sort of front and center of Trump's focus um, with the, the headlines on Twitter and uh, them adding some uh, fact-checking to his tweets and adding some messages there. What, what do you think, is, is there, you know, the tech story has been such a hot topic for the last 12, 13 years in terms of just performance beating everything else, uh, the big the big tech giants. Do you think there's increasing regulatory risk to these tech companies? Are people worried they're starting to get too powerful and and they're, whether it's Amazon is shopping? Um, I mean, I only order on Amazon at the moment. You got Twitter on, on content. What, what, what's your thoughts on the regulation risk here? I mean, I think there is definitely a regulation risk for many of these firms. That's why they're acting uh, in many ways. I think, I think the main issue here is that would people, when people talk about regulation in this case, one is to be very, very careful on the implication of that. And when I, when what I mean by that is it's very easy to say, I don't want you to write. Like people tend to believe, and I'll specifically talk about what Twitter is getting into now and Facebook, People say, well, I don't want you to regulate. I, I'm, we're going to only regulate facts. We're only going to a, a post information on what facts are, are valuable and what's not, and what's true and what's not. But the reality of this is actually quite complex, because every time I, I write something, there is always a decision on what I write and what I don't write, in which case that's already an opinion. It's not a fact anymore. So when people... I think all of these platforms were, from the beginning, under the impression that you can actually use technology to solve that. And it's not so much a political question. Well, the political side is saying, well, this is very much a political question, and technology cannot do that. Now, I think the risk here is the reason we got into this position is that culture and norms absolutely lag behind technology. Right? In, in many ways, technology has evolved in the last few years, and the ability, again, going back to the distribution, people didn't care so much about uh, lies and misinformation in the past because... No, you, you had the limited reach. You could probably go on the phone. You can go on, on, on the radio. You can go on TV. But there, is, there, there was something a, somewhat minimal about that reach. Now, when, when we have significant reach, that's not the case. Now, the last thing I'll say about that is, if you look again, if you look at most of the monopolies of the previous century, most of them had what we like to call diminishing return to scale. So over time, as they became bigger and bigger and bigger, they became less and less effective. In which case, you need to regulate them 
but they actually undermine themselves, a little bit like what GE is doing now. The new type of economy, if you look at Amazon, Facebook, Google, they actually become better and better as they scale in many ways. Their network effects that drive them are actually powered by their scale. They actually become faster. Their clock speed become faster. And I think that's kind of where the regulation may need to come and say to what extent these firms actually create an advantage now by which we will not be able, in fact, so there's really no competition that's come. But, you know, that, that's actually, when you look at Facebook, people say there is really no way to kill Facebook. No one can compete with Facebook until TikTok came. Even yeah. that is actually was, was a challenge over time. So in that sense, I think regulation has to be really, really careful here in trying to understand what are they really trying to achieve? What is that just a... a, a specific issue that probably will change the political power will change or is it something but much more structural to the economy well gad this has been a great conversation we're going to be continuing focusing on technology in the program and uh as as your great uh, expertise here from a wharton professor thanks so much for joining us i'm sure we'll be coming back to you on this topic thanks so much it's great to be here thanks we're going to be talking with one of the cloud platform companies, how they're seeing the the, the labor force and the, the reopening impacting their business. I'm talking with Rowan Trollop, who's CEO of Five9, their leading provider of cloud contact center software for enterprises. We also have Ethan Kurzweil, who's a partner at San Francisco-based Bessemer Venture Partners, a venture capital firm who's been leading investments in the cloud space for a long time. Uh, so that I worked with uh, NASDAQ, who uses some of the Bessemer Venture Partners insights to create an index on the cloud. That index is up over 30% year to date. Um, and uh, Rowan's company is one of the top holdings in that sort of very interesting space. So thank you, Rowan, Ethan, for both coming on the program today to talk about what's going on in the cloud. Absolutely. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Hi. Maybe I'll start with Ethan first just to frame you know how they think about the space generally before we drill into particulars with Rowan on 59 Ethan you know so your firm has been doing a lot of of work in the cloud space how do you guys see that uh, sort of general trend in software uh, as, as sort of the, the big picture worldview yeah I mean the, the the general trend in software has been to move software for the cloud it's more agile it's more flexible it allows just coincidentally, which is a big benefit today. It allows for people to access software from more and more places. That's helpful, of course, when everyone's working from home. Um, and so that trend for more agility, more flexibility, and the ability to use more best-of-breed software, you can piece together software from a bunch of different providers more easily using cloud computing, has been uh, in progress for 15, 20 years or so from sort of early efforts or like salesforce.com, moving your customer contact file to the cloud, um, to more recent efforts to move core pieces of infrastructure. Uh, it got a little bit of a shot in the arm recently when uh, everyone stopped going into the office and started connecting to all their systems from home. Uh, it just accelerated all the enterprises looking to modernize their systems and build software that allows for more connectivity from more places. Um, now, the current environment will have good and bad effects. I think overall, it'll it'll kind of push forward innovation over the long run, and it'll cause a lot of companies that are may have been laggards in cloud adoption to, uh, to look seriously at moving more of their core systems to the cloud. Um, but it may slow th things down in some other areas. It may slow down investments in certain systems that companies weren't going to build. So it's it's both a positive, and you, you mentioned the stock price performance of the um, BBP Emerging Cloud Index. We've seen that there. Uh, you know, I think this is very much the early innings of how this environment will affect cloud computing stocks in general. Yeah, it's sort of really interesting. You know, people talk about the these stocks being expensive, but they're sort of super high growth. And I think Five9 represents that high growth uh, very well. Rowan, maybe you could give, before we get into the, the, the background on, on what Five9 does and what your solutions are providing, but maybe give our listeners a little bit about your background, how you came to become CEO of Five9, some of your, your background. Sure. Thanks, Jeremy. And hi, Ethan. Great to talk to you again. We're um, Good to be with you, Rowan. I... I, <laughs> I I uh, formerly worked at Cisco, where I ran all of their collaboration technologies and and uh, and also it's a software division called Applications. Before that, I was in the cybersecurity space. I'm about 30 years of 30 years of my career is as a software developer, and I've been at Five Nine now for two years. So that's that's my background. I've been really interested in 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 cloud, sort of at the very beginning of that trend, as Ethan mentioned, it's been going on for a really long time. So right since the beginning, um, you know, that's been sort of my mission, I guess, the last 20 years in enterprise IT transitioning 
companies onto cloud solutions. And um, the last two years, as I mentioned, has been Five9. So Five9 is cloud-based contact center. And what is that? It's everything you need to connect and engage with your customers. Uh, and if you've got people uh, or automated, you know, systems that you want to provide support or services to your customers. Uh, we provide that platform. And we're replacing legacy on-premises, you know, sort of PBX phone systems. So <clears throat> if you've ever had that terrible experience of calling into a business and you go through the dreaded IVR, you know, the push one for this, push two for that, it's an extremely frustrating process. Most companies have these legacy phone systems where the uh, information about the customer is not connected the agent doesn't know who you are. They don't have all the information. You kind of get the runaround. It's not a very human experience. <clears throat> Suddenly, not something that people like. And so we replace all that. And we have a very simple, it's a web-based software. And uh, agents just log into the to our cloud-based service. And they can talk to your customers either with a USB headset over the phone or they can message them, SMS, email, WhatsApp, all that kind of stuff. So we've been doing that for about, the company's been around for 18 years. It was sort of the first in this space to invent sort of the idea of moving a contact center to the cloud. And it's solving <clears throat> a, a fundamentally a really big problem, which is people don't like customer service. They, they anticipate the worst when they're going to call a company or message a company that, you know, if they're going to get the runaround, they're going to not get the service that they deserve. And uh, that's something that, you know, there's a lot of money being spent by businesses globally on these technologies. It's specifically, in the contact center, there are 16 million people around the world working for companies doing customer service or working in a contact center in some way, shape, or form. And $24 billion is spent on mostly legacy technology to create a solution and, and an experience that, as I mentioned, fundamentally no one really likes. And when you add up the labor costs, you're, you're nearing in on a quarter of a trillion dollars being spent globally to create an experience that no one likes. And that's what we fix. It's amazing. We I mean, I, put I the human back in that customer service experience. I mean, I think personally, you call into any, whether it's your bank or credit card, and you got you try, push, you try to push, let me talk to per, this person as quickly as possible, yeah. you know, instead of going through that runaround. So it, <laughs> it's interesting. Are, are, are you, so are you seeing most people with this trying to have remote work, having people not in centers? Is, is most of your technology being already this work-from-home type environment? Yeah, so that has been a trend in, in our industry. They've been calling it home-shoring for a while. Uh, obviously, COVID, 100% of our agents in, I think, roughly two weeks, uh, and we don't employ the agents, we just make the software, but 100% of our customers sent their agents home in, a, in about a week to two weeks. And, um, and, and the interesting thing is, the question we've been getting a lot has been, is, are they going to go back? Are you going to see... You know, when the COVID thing is over or when we have a vaccine or what have you, are you going to see people in these contact centers going back to these big, you know, football field size, you know, sort of call centers? And the answer is no. Resoundingly, our customers, 75 percent of them have said, we're not going back. This is the new normal. In fact, our largest customer, uh, one of our largest customers, it, you know, with over 5000 agents, uh, is going to leave 80 percent of their agents at home, even in a post COVID world. So I think this work from home trend is here to stay and that's uh, I think really good uh, for for the agents it's a better quality of life and it's a better experience for your customers because they get to speak to someone who's happier turnover goes down productivity goes up there, there are a lot of benefits to moving uh, and, and letting your agents work from home Ethan uh, what, any other do you have how's that sync up with other things you're hearing from other portfolio companies you guys invest in and uh, is that sort of this 80% going to stay work from home for a long time. How, how's that syncing up with what you see? Very, very consistent. Um, I think it's going to vary by industry, of course. And there's certain industries where working from home uh, is just more applicable. Software development, for, for instance, is um, a lot of the companies that we work with announcing they're going to move either to a remote first model or a remote friendly model. Shopify thinks they're going to be 50% remote. Facebook made a similar announcement recently. Um, you know, those companies, most of their employees make software. And so that's uh, perhaps an easier lift for them. What that implies is pretty interesting in that they're going to need to invest in both collaboration and remote development tools, remote infrastructure tools. 
so that they can keep those sites running and be able to collaborate around building product in a remote world. Um, and so that has, you know, for someone like me, where I invest a lot in developer tooling and developer infrastructure, has pretty profound effects in terms of, well, what software do you need so that you can collaborate with other software developers when you're not physically located together? And, and you know, it, it spans the gamut from project management tools to uh, tools that are involved in the you know, release cycle and testing cycle for, for actually um, putting software into production. Uh, in other areas, it's been mixed. Um, you've seen Apple has said they want to send more of their employees back more soon, as soon as they can, including already. Um, that's a discipline where being, uh, you know, developing hardware, where being together matters more. And I think it's just running the gamut. Um, for customer service agents, it sounds like that, that, that move is probably here to stay. And I think a lot of businesses have had to say, hey, how do we ensure that remote working and some sort of a distributed environment can be part of our discipline and part of our um, practice for how we run our companies in the future, even if it's not the predominant mode. So I think everyone is having that conversation and the effects of it, you know, they remain to be seen, but it's obviously uh, been a shot in the arm for that movement. So let me just introduce our guest. We're talking with Rowan Trollup, who's CEO of Five9, uh, and Ethan Kurzweil, a partner at Bessemer Venture Partners. Um, Rowan, I want to get into the the how consistently strong your growth has been, you know, in this space for the last ten years, and how long you think it continues to grow at the the speed it has. So you sort of multiplied revenue by ten times over the last ten years, sort of thirty percent compound growth rates. Is, what's the trajectory? How do you see that long-term path for 5.9? You know, there's a decade-long transition of this industry. It's $24 billion of spend today. Less than 10% of that spend has migrated to the cloud. Uh, so, and these systems are complex. They're typically highly integrated into your back-end business systems. They're connected to your CRM platform. And so replacing them, uh, it's not something that customers decide to do on a whim. Generally, what we see is a very steady uh, transition or, or a very, very steady sort of a set of customers whose contracts for their legacy systems are expiring, um, and they don't want to go through that upgrade process. They say, you know, we should be looking to the cloud. So that's one. Uh, there's a natural limiter on the on the on the um, transition of those customers as they sort of work through their contracts. These systems tend to, old PBXs tended to last, you know, seven to 10 years in a customer's environment. So we have a long highway of very consistent growth. This isn't a, a land grab by any stretch of the imagination. The other thing that's happening as we move to the cloud, though, is you know, there's $24 billion spent on this technology, but there's $240 billion spent on the labor in this category. And what is happening as we transition to the cloud is all of that Voice, all the voice conversations, the text and email conversations, they're all uh, being used now, and this is part of our strategy, is leveraging AI to build automation on top of the data. So once you have the data about what your customers are saying and how much they're saying it and what is the tone and, and, and how are they communicating with you, it provides a very rich source of information to train AI models to start to um, replace and augment some of the labor that's been in this space. So in addition to the natural just cloud transition, we also have a huge amount of value that we can create by helping businesses be more efficient, leveraging AI and data uh, that comes in through the contact center. That's very interesting. Um, you know, one of the in, the, in this high growth tech space, uh, I, and I've, I've learned this rule from my talks with Bessemer, but you know, your your investor relations presentation was one that first where I saw somebody frame the rule of forty and how you sort mm -hmm. of been meeting the rule of forty. Do you want to sort of describe to our listeners? I just I'm curious how you guys as yeah. a company and a management team think about this rule of forty and uh, and and sort of frame it for our, for our listeners. Sure, I'll first describe it for those of you who haven't heard it. Um, it's a the combination of revenue growth plus uh, either free cash flow or EBITDA in our case. Uh, percentage and when you find companies that have you know a combined cash flow plus uh, or, or EBITDA plus revenue growth over 40 points uh, is when you see these sort of these are um, they're either very fast growing or they have a nice balance a profitable business and that's where we are we're the balanced side of that range um, you know with our revenues haven't been consistently growing in the high 20s and accelerating <clears throat> last quarter was 28 um, 
And then our EBITDA in the high teens, uh, you know, kind of crested over 20% uh, last year. We're, we're a different kind of company, I think, in some ways. Um, certainly my, my style is uh, slightly more conservative on this front, maybe even a little old-fashioned. We're not a growth-at-all-costs uh, business. I am building an all-weather company, something that's durable, that can last a really long time, because this transition is going to happen for a, for a long time. And, and one of the challenges that I've seen is, you know, as companies in, in, in growth-at-all-costs uh, mode tend to get the high-speed wobbles, it's really hard to grow your sales force by 50%. We're literally every salesperson that you meet in the company, you know, one out of every three of them is brand new that year. It's hard to maintain the culture, the cultural sort of connective tissue that, that can sustain a company over a long period of time. So we have the benefit of the fact that the category is sort of growing at a natural rate. We think we're growing slightly faster than the category is growing, so taking share. Um, but we're, we're conservative. We like, we like profitable business. We, we, we've been committing to the street that we'll grow our EBITDA uh, you know, over time and um, you know, invest in the company, certainly, but also have a balance of, of revenue growth and, and profit. Ethan, how do you think about that Rule 40 and, uh, and, and what, what uh, Five Nine's been able to deliver there? Well, it's fundamentally a measure of the efficiency of the company. How much does it cost to get the growth? Um, and why we like it is because not all growth is created equal. Um, cloud computing companies often require a lot of upfront investment. That's the design of it, uh, in that you put a lot of money into building software and then deliver it later where a, co- where a customer pays you over time. Um, but once you get to the point where you can harvest that investment in the form of you know, customer engagements, uh, it often different companies have different modalities in terms of just how much they can deliver, how costly it is to be able to scale the business side, the commercial side of their operation. Some types of sales are very expensive. Some types of um, companies just require a lot to deliver the software. And that kind of gets baked into the EBITDA margin. Um, also, it, it implies a nice trade-off for a company in terms of how fast they can grow. If you can grow your EBITDA, if you can, if you can grow your um, your top line without a commensurate um, bottom line impact to that, you you spend less than a dollar for every dollar of growth. You should probably do that. Um, you know, assuming you know rough percentages working out equally. Uh, where it, where it's really expensive to growth, where the marginal return on an additional investment in a new sales team or something something of the sort like that um, isn't profitable to do that, or it's going to lead to you know very quick. Dim, uh, diminishing returns to that investment, that's when the rule of 40 starts to hit you when you would go down the bat when your uh, free cash flow margin or your EBITDA margin would uh, would go down faster than your growth rate goes up. Uh, and so it's a measure we look at a lot. And it um, we think over time, if you look at some of the stocks that are trading at the highest multiples like 5.9, it's as a result of having a favorable ratio there. They're able to grow faster than it costs uh, it costs them to do so. One of the metrics we look at a lot is our long-term value per customer to the cost to acquire that customer, the LTV to CAC ratio, which in our case, in our enterprise business, which is 81% of our total, the long-term value to CAC ratio is six to one. So they're extremely profitable uh, and very sticky. Our churn rates are very low. Our dollar-based retention rate, net dollar-based retention rate is in the enterprise space, you know, well north of 110%. And I mean that just to give the listeners some some benchmark for that. We consider everything above three to one, uh, you know, pretty good, and four to one exceptional. So in the six to one range, that's a that's a really extraordinary metric. Um, that's that, that's very commendable, Rowan. When, when you think when you talk about the the AI application of all you have all this data coming in through serving the customers and then you're, you're going to try to help them with the AI. It's interesting. Like where, as you think about your employee base and how you are, you're investing around your opportunity, like where, where are you making your big investments to, to help keep growing? You know, the vast majority is on pretty much meat and potatoes stuff, uh, which is just helping customers take their existing operations and transition them to the cloud. And that creates a base that we can, Land, that we can land in terms of seats and, and technology with customers that we can then expand into. And the expansion, uh, one of the big expansion opportunities is AI. 
it's 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 not a huge investment for us at this point. We have chosen to partner with Google, um, who obviously have many more AI engineers than I have. We're a small company, um, and uh, and so that partnership has been very very successful for us because um, we're bringing best in class, you know, speech. Uh, recognition, best-in-class natural language processing, best-in-class natural language understanding, all powered by Google to this problem, and um, and customers have had great success there. Now, I think it's still early days, and still the the vast majority uh, of our investment and our business opportunity is is literally just doing the basics, just help customers with these legacy systems, get them onto a modern cloud platform, and once you're there then the opportunities start to expand. And so we're running as fast as we can uh, just to help customers get onto the platform and to keep that platform running reliably. And I mentioned that net dollar base retention rate, which is an extremely important metric for us. And thank, frankly, the name of the company, 5.9, it, it stands for five nines of reliability or 99.999% reliability. In our category, reliability is king. It's the most important thing that customers look at because if you think about your contact center, it's it's you know especially in in a COVID world where you no longer have a retail presence, the contact center becomes the front door to your business, and the last thing you want is that front door to be closed or broken or locked or unavailable for your customers. So availability and reliability is is way up there for us, uh, and it drives a lot of what we do um, to make sure that we're we're being reliable for our customers. We're down into our last uh, call, minute and a half. Um, any sort of final comments? People who should be looking at Five Nights or sort of strong customer base today. Where you're looking to expand, things that you could serve well, and where you, where you hope to keep growing your business there. Yeah, I mean, anyone who is finding themselves in a position where you know, either through COVID or otherwise, they are accelerating their move to digital engagement with their customers, so non phone based or you know, one to email or SMS chat. Uh, give us a call, 59.com. Also, if you've got an old BBX system, if you're not delivering the customer experience that you know that your customers deserve and that you want to deliver, come give us a come give us a look. We we've been able to stand up, uh, you know, thousands of agents um, for some of the COVID relief efforts in in days. So we're able to get customers started very very quickly. It's very very easy. There's not a lot of complexity in terms of what the customer has to do. So. Uh, give us a call and, and we can we can help out. We're primarily based in the U.S. Um, we've uh, just signed a partnership, actually, a notable partnership with AT&T. So AT&T is now starting to deliver 5.9, uh, which is branded as the AT&T Cloud Contact Center. So you can contact AT&T. You can contact us directly, uh, 5.9.com. Well, that's, this has been great. I appreciate uh, you sharing a bit about your company, Rowan. And Ethan, always good to uh, get your team's perspective on what's going on in the cloud space. Thank you both for joining us for some comments today. You're very Thank welcome. You very Thanks for having us on. Very good. We've been talking to Ethan Kurzweil of Bessemer Venture Partners, Rowan Trollope of 5.9, CEO 5.9. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.